I want to preface the sermon. Um, next week, Matt is going to preach, and he's going to he's going to talk about like if you need theological permission to consider all of this, then come next week. <laughs> That's not what's going to happen this week. Next week, Matt will talk about scripture. He'll go he'll go into the theology of it all. This week, I'm setting the groundwork. Um, so we begin this series with a pretty provocative invitation, which is to consider God as she. We're going to spend some time highlighting and learning to embrace a feminine image of God. And my goal for this sermon is really just to talk about why this matters. Why is this important that we talk about this? And hopefully to create a little bit of buy-in for the rest of the series. I felt a little nervous publishing our marketing graphic on social media this week. Um, we get trolled more than you would think. We're pretty uh, pastors. We, we have a lot of different skill sets. We're all pretty fast at getting on there and pressing the delete button. Um, and I really thought that this one was going to take the cake. There is something that makes people incredibly angry about daring to attribute feminine language and characteristics to God. Jesus was a man, after all, so God must be a man. This is such a common response that the idea of using female pronouns, for example, um, is pretty controversial or at the least uncomfortable for many. But why? Many of us have no trouble intellectually entertaining the idea that God could possess both feminine and masculine characteristics as well as in, in everything in between and outside. Those are our constructs, right? Yet we often think about God, pray to God, teach our children and others about God as if God were male. How do we begin practicing? What we don't deny, which is that God is not a man or a woman, but is above all, in all, through all, beyond our greatest understanding. How do we really live this truth out, practically speaking? How do we make room, space in our, our theological frameworks and in our hearts for a God who is both he and she? And why does it even matter so much? I think of something Mary Daly once wrote, if God is male then the male is God. When we limit God by way of our broken societal structures, when we limit God because of our compulsive need to categorize, when we make God small because of our finite and flawed human constructs, then we all suffer, all of us. I look at the Bible and honestly, a lot of the time, I'm too angry to open it. In so many ways, it has been used as a tool against me, a brown female pastor. And in a lot of ways, my, and for my whole life, and I'm just now coming to terms with that, it has been used as a tool for brokenness. And power-hungry, fear-driven people have used it to perpetuate and sustain institutionalized oppression over the ages. To this day, it's being misused in this way among some Christian leaders flailing to hang on to paradigms people just aren't buying anymore. 
and lately in our highest offices of government as well as a way to control and manipulate the masses. And I'm angry. I'm angry about this. I'm angry about the ways the Bible has been used to keep so many suffering and silent, even while I know there is beauty to be found within its pages. I know God's agenda shines through all of this, and it is the love of Christ, that radiant pull of Jesus, that continues to draw me in despite the way Scripture has been and is often misused. And so I come before the text, I came before this text, but I come before it with anger and love and desperation and grief and hope all battling within me, and I wanted you to know that. I think this is why I especially have a a particular regard for the lectionary, that collection of scripture readings which follows the church calendar year after year. Similar to written prayers which give us words to speak when we don't have them ourselves, the lectionary holds me accountable every week. It gives me a starting point. It gives me words to read when I'm just not sure I can do it otherwise. And so with this spirit, I came to this reading from Mark this week And the words were for me, you guys. They were for us, for this moment, for this conversation. This week's reading is a continuation from last week's reading. Literally, it starts off where we left off in Mark chapter 7. And if you put the stories side by side, which you're probably supposed to do since they're in the same chapter, you'll notice a contrast between the stories. A contrast between insider and outsider. A contrast between fierce love and and tradition. And and then a contrast between the need for certainty and persistent faithfulness. So in last week's story, Jesus is with the people who are supposed to be his people. Jewish religious leaders, his disciples. The former are deeply offended at his seemingly disregard for the law. Their shared orthodoxy. But all Jesus is trying to say, and we talked about this last week, is that when rules are more important than love, we are getting it wrong. In other words, I'm sorry, if he, he appeals to the law to do this. So in other words, he speaks their language, but it doesn't matter. Their heels are dug in. Law over love. So, in frustration from this interaction, Jesus leaves. He literally goes away. He walks away from these religious leaders, away from correct doctrine and tradition, and he goes to this place called Tyre. And that's where our reading begins today. And this is significant because Tyre was located northwest of the Sea of Galilee, outside the boundary lines of the Old Testament promised land, meaning that Jesus leaves his people and goes to a predominantly Gentile area. Not only does he leave his people behind, but he goes to a people who the Jews have a great disdain and prejudice towards. And in doing so, he extends his ministry to them, which is extremely radical and provocative. So this is the context to consider in this story when this Syrophoenician woman seeks Jesus out. She would have been hated by the religious leaders that Jesus had just been with. Those men would have viewed Jewish women as their property. So this woman would have been no better than a dog to them. And Jesus, clearly still processing what had just happened, still stewing over their stubbornness, says as much when she asks him for help on behalf of her daughter. 
The request that she asks of him is extraordinary, not because a miracle is being asked of him, but because of who is doing the asking. Notice the intersections in this story. This woman is a symbol to us of the isms and phobias that continue to plague our world as a result of our need to categorize and control. In her, we see the image of racism through the despised ethnic group she represents. We see the image of sexism because of her gender. We see the image of xenophobia because she is a foreigner, an outsider. And as an outsider, she did not share their faith tradition, and so there would have been great prejudice there as well. Basically, this woman in this story represents the bottom of the bottom. In every way that she could be ostracized, marginalized, and discriminated against, she is. And yet, this wild woman with all the fierce love of a mother seeks out this Jewish man of God who she has heard can do great things. She has every reason to believe that he will not just reject her, but that he will hate her. And she seeks him out anyway. And she repeatedly asks him for help. She persists despite every odd being against her. So she is the antithesis of the religious leaders in the first part of the chapter, and she is the epitome of faithfulness for this entire reading. And Jesus responds to this faithfulness with his own. And this moment marks a turning point in his ministry. He went to the enemy of his own people, and he showed them compassion, proving in the most powerful way possible that our call to extend the love of God to include everyone in the healing work of God knows no bounds. In doing so, Jesus highlights his unwillingness to be bound by sexism or racism or anything else. Despite us, Jesus will not be bound by our constructs. And the life of Jesus will not allow us for one moment to believe that these man-made institutions could be from God. They're not. Instead, Jesus is for us. Jesus is for people. People over tradition. People over rules. People over isms and phobias. And Jesus proves this to us in one sweeping moment when he grants healing to the most lowly of all. Because there was only one person who could have been more vulnerable than this woman who represents every societal powerlessness, and that is her little daughter. So he does the Jesus thing, and he heals her. And he doesn't require any kind of litmus test, any kind of proof. He doesn't need to go see the situation, assess things. He matches faith with faith, and he heals this small child just by saying the word. But what does any of this have to do with the divine feminine image of God? Well, we as a society are stuck on an autopilot that was set for us thousands of years ago. An autopilot to categorize and then systemically marginalize based on gender, based on color, based on creed, sexual preference, financial status, education status, and any other category that would ensure there are always insiders and outsiders. And if you can't tell from today's reading, Jesus isn't about that. Hear me when I say this. I'm not just talking about neo-Nazis or abusive husbands. I'm talking about you and me. Good people, with good hearts, and good intentions who love Jesus. We don't wake up every day saying, today I'm going to be a misogynist, 
or I think I'm going to get on a Facebook now and post some racist rhetoric. Like, <laughs> most people don't do this, but we all need to wake up to our biases and our tendencies and the microaggressions we each contribute to every single day. We need to wake up because we are all operating under a societal framework that is designed to oppress and discriminate. It is written into our history and our culture, which flows into our politics and our society, and surprise, surprise, our churches. And our understanding of the image of God is related to all of this. We have been a predominantly Christian populated country for, for too long for it not to be. Our theology has and continues to influence societal consciousness. Do you ever wonder why the sexual violence and abuse and harassment of females compared to males is unparalleled? Do you ever wonder why one in nine little girls are victims of sexual assault by adults compared to one in 53 little boys? It's not rocket science. When women have been historically viewed and treated as property over the course of centuries, when it has been validated by law over the course of centuries, the effects of that don't just go away. At some point, we must intervene ourselves. We have to alter the course of history. Doing this requires going outside our comfort zones, outside our boundary lines. Often this will mean questioning tradition and even correct doctrine. It will mean risking our reputations, rocking the boat, offending our tribe, just as it did for Jesus. Part of this work requires admitting that there is real damage done to women and girls, their self-worth and their value in society. When everything good, everything holy, and everything of God is described with he and him. We have been highlighting Jesus' radical treatment of a woman who was considered less than property, but who Jesus treated as equal to him and his peers. This was a couple thousand years ago, and people want to say, I hear this all the time, that women have it great today compared to back then. That there is this evil, man-hating, feminist agenda which is just constantly looking to make up stuff, make up things out of nothing. And this is just not true. Women have, you know, we may have it way better than, than a couple thousand years ago, but that shouldn't take away from our reality today. Instead, it should inspire us all to keep moving toward the beautiful image of the kingdom of God on earth, which from what I can tell looks an awful lot like equality. Did you know that it has been less than 100 years since women have had the right to vote in our country? Like, that's crazy. Did you know that today there are more CEOs named James and Fortune 500 companies than woman, women CEOs? Total. In the workforce, women get promoted less often, paid half as much, and are expected to work twice as hard if they want to achieve similar places as men. Meanwhile, women have also inherited from our mothers and our grandmothers and their mothers the role of household manager and emotional laborer on behalf of the family, as well as primary caregiver to the children well past nursing stages, whether we work outside the home or not. Women have an unspoken expectation from a young age to dress a certain way, speak a certain way, carry themselves a certain way. We're expected to check ourselves constantly so that we do not tempt men, and then we're expected to stay silent when we inevitably do. Women suffer from 
for men's actions. Women of color, most of all. Just like in today's story, we can't forget all the intersections. Women have to consider a laundry list of variables before we can step outside and go for a run alone. Like, I'm not complaining, I'm just stating facts. There's a poem by Muriel Rukeyser that says, what would happen if one woman told the truth about her life? The world would split open. And I believe it. But again, what, why does any of this matter? Isn't our reading today proof enough that it does matter? Isn't this story of Jesus' revolutionary love and inclusion of a nameless Gentile woman enough to tell us the kinds of things that Jesus prioritized? And if we are followers of Jesus, shouldn't his priorities be our priorities? The role of women, the treatment of women in society, in the workplace, in churches, in their homes, the alarming rates of sexual violence toward women and girls are all related to our image of God. When God is only male, it gives bad men permission to abuse. When God is only male, it gives decent men a flawed and unbalanced understanding of what it means to be good. When God is only male, toxic masculinity thrives. When God is only male, we all suffer. We need to transform our understanding of the image of God, and our language about God matters. We need to understand the implications of this. We need to understand the connection it has to societal consciousness, and we need to feel a sense of urgency to change things. We need to begin by reevaluating our own standards for engaging our faith, even when it makes us uncomfortable. Jesus shows us through today's story that our autopilot should always be love, no questions asked. And it's okay if that's not natural for us every single day all the time. It's not supposed to be easy. But we follow Jesus because we strive for love to be what compels us, for love to be what drives everything we do. If we are driven by love, we have nothing to lose. People who are driven by love are not driven by power. People who are driven by love lay down power. People who are driven by love lay down ego. People who are driven by love lay down fear. The only reason people have to so fiercely protect God as only Father, because believe me, Scripture says otherwise, is because it benefits them somehow. It either protects you from facing your fears, from doing the nitty-gritty work of faith, or it somehow preserves your power. But if God is an inclusive God, which Jesus proves to be true time and time again through the Gospels, then we know it is our call to lay down our human inclination to put God in a box and just follow. Do you know what it feels like for only masculine imagery of God to be used for a whole lifetime, and then for that to flow out into every part of life, every opportunity you can have, every dream you can have, every movie you see about what it means to be a hero. For me, it feels like someone, some other force, is trying to keep me from knowing and experiencing God more fully. It feels like I am being prevented from fully recognizing the Spirit of God in me, in my feminine self, my body, my heart. It feels like someone else would have me be lesser, would have me stay bent. I know this outside force is not from God, because nowhere in Scripture do I see any evidence that God values women less than men. What I see is God's inclusive agenda shining through the muck of patriarchy. If our little girls 
grow up only hearing him and he and father when it comes to the image of God, where is their sense of Imago Day? We are all made in the image of God, right? If little boys grow up hearing only him and he and father when it comes to the image of God, how can they ever really learn to value girls and women in a way that is wholly reflective of Jesus? When I was a girl, I operated from within this old paradigm. I didn't have a choice. But now, I'm a woman. A woman who has woken up, a woman who has learned to trust herself, and perhaps most importantly, a woman who has a daughter of her own. So, there is a fire in my belly, and I am on a rampage. Dedicated to the work of Jesus, the work of tearing down those human structures, those human constructs, those broken institutions that would prevent all people from knowing their dignity, their self-worth, their fullness in God, their imago Dei. Just as that Gentile mother stopped at no end so that her little daughter could know healing and wholeness, so I commit myself to this urgent work for the sake of my little daughter and for the sake of all our children, won't you join me? Amen.